Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Welcome back, Tita, to Canada. Very glad to be here. <laughs> it makes have a sign above the door when you walk in saying, you're leaving Canada. <laughs> you're entering Canada. So, um, we've been studying the Prajnaparamita Heart Sutra, and um, last week we looked at the section that dealt with the walls of the mind, and how when we are able to uh, work with the walls of the mind, um, or in this translation, hindrances, then uh, this becomes the end of fear. Is anybody experiencing fear in their life? Sometimes when there's transition, there's fear. Um, and we get preoccupied with fear. But usually we get preoccupied with fear, and then we get preoccupied with our preoccupations around our preoccupations that we create around the fear. And then we don't have to deal with the fear, we just deal with the preoccupations, which is kind of convenient. And then we think the trouble is with our preoccupations. That's why it's interesting in the meditation practice, when um, you're caught or entangled in something, before you make a move whether it's with technique or whatever, to come back to the breath. It's really interesting just to stop, to recognize that there's entanglement, and to notice the attitude in the mind, to notice the attitude that you bring to whatever it is you're caught up in. Because the way we perceive something literally transfigures what we're perceiving. And that happens at such an unconscious level that we don't realize that when pain arises, when fear arises, and the attitude in the mind is that what's arising is something to get rid of. 
I like to think of this as a condemning mind, then we don't treat what's arising as sacred. We also don't see that fear has a value. So when you check the attitude of the mind, you start to get at the essence of what this meditation practice is about. It's not just noticing what's arising and unfolding and passing away, but also noticing how one is noticing. Noticing the quality of our noticing. And that's what gets refined. Because most of the time, there's so much going on in the noticing that we're not really noticing we're judging, we're storytelling. How many of you were storytelling for the last 30 minutes? Don't, don't put up your hand, please. There's new people and I don't want them. So to really be able to discern the difference between the storytelling and the direct embodied visceral experience of being present with what's happening, with how life is how life's unfolding, this is it. And so what we were exploring last week is um, there's this striking move here in the Heart Sutra where instead of saying that the Bodhisattva, which is you, takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which we covered last week, saying the Bodhisattva actually takes refuge in Prajnaparamita, which is your heart which is the mother of all Buddhas. And so we take refuge in this, in what's happening here, in what's happening now. Otherwise, we start to confuse the world with our theories of the world, and then we end up living in a virtual reality where we're trying to ground ourselves in this security project that we're all involved in, like psychic RRSPs, you know, like creating some kind of security so that in the future, the story that I create will give me some kind of foundation. And the kicker is that the story that you create creates separation, not foundation. It's an illusory kind of ground. And then you look at the moon and you don't see the moon. You look at the loon and you don't see the loon. You look at your RRSP, if anyone does that, um, and you don't see an RRSP. You see security. And most of our stories are really around... uh, their kind of responses to this basic insecurity that we all feel. This basic insecurity that the self um, is groundless. Because when you start to see that the root of the self is an identification or a misidentification with a story that we're telling. See, the mind is just a context maker. It's taking whatever is occurring in real time and trying to put it into a context, 
called namarupa, name and form. And as the mind puts things into a context, it gives the feeling that we know what's going on. It's fitting the story. But then, last week we talked about this in terms of like regular fear, but actually there's an existential fear going on, which is the fact that the self can't ever be grounded because it never really existed in the first place. It was a superimposition on reality. And that's our greatest fear, and that's what we try and repress the most. The fear of losing oneself is actually the fear of intimacy. It's what we don't want the most. We'll do anything to not get it. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, strategies for ending relationships or something. But the fact that at some level we come to realize, or hopefully we realize over time, that the fact that the self has no inherent existence um, becomes a source of life when we're not trying to fill it up anymore. When we're not trying to ground it. We're exhausted by trying to ground this narrative all the time. And then the Heart Sutra says, um, no hindrance in the mind, no hindrance, therefore, nor fear. No fear. Far beyond deluded thoughts, this is nirvana. So nirvana is a Sanskrit word. For those of you who study the Vipassana tradition, nibbana in Pali. Um, nirvana means to extinguish or to blow out. And what's blown out? What's blown out? Sound. What's that? Separation. What's that? Separation. Separation. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the kind of... The, the segregated self is blown out. The self-created self is blown out. So for all of those, all those of you who are, um, you know, involved in creative work, you know that there are moments in your work where the self is blown out. And it's way more interesting. Way more interesting. Otherwise, we keep confusing what we see and what we hear because we're referring it back to a self. And then we lose it. And then you don't see the tree, you don't see your friends, you don't see your parents, because you're turning them into parents. Saigyo, wonderful translation. When the moon shines without the smallest blemish, I think of her, and then my heart disfigures it, blurs it with tears. When the moon shines without the smallest blemish, I think of her, and then my heart disfigures it, blurs it with tears. Have you ever looked um, at the moon 
and saw how sad it was. And like two nights later, it's so happy being up there, <laughs> hanging around <laughs> up there. Yeah. You ever do this with other people? <laughs> and so what happens is when we don't recognize the attitude that we're bringing to what we're noticing, we confuse what we're noticing with our theory about it. And in that, we're creating a self. Because the reason why we need to turn objects into objects is so we can ground the self, right? Like, when you meet somebody you don't know, and right away you plug them into a context to turn them into an object, you do that to create a subject, to create a self, to, to ground the self. And that kills intimacy. And that's what you want. Why? Well, the you that wants it is totally freaked out that if you didn't do that, it would be out of a job. So it, so even, and you know this from your meditation practice, that even when there are moments where it stops, that storytelling, we were calling it the framer a few weeks ago, when the framer stops and there is a moment of breakthrough, then the framer frames the breakthrough. And then you're really spiritual. <laughs> yeah. And that's why um, in times of war, um, a lot of soldiers report feeling more meaning in their life than they've ever felt. This is what nationalism is about, right? Because when you create an enemy, which is the object, then your subject feels temporarily grounded. It feels real because you have a viewpoint. And we all love, delight, and revel in our viewpoint. What else is worth living for? My viewpoint. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to read the whole poem, but... Here's a passage from a wonderful poem written between 1971 and 1991 by Allen Ginsberg called Hum Bomb. If you were in the uh, retreat last week, you heard this poem. <coughs> Listen carefully. He performed this one time, actually, in 1991 in Lebanon. Hum Bomb. We bomb them. Hum Bomb. We bomb them. Who bomb? We bomb them. Who bomb? We bomb them. Whom bomb? We bomb you. Whom bomb? We bomb you. Whom bomb? You bomb you. Whom bomb? You bomb you. What do we do? Who do we bomb? What do we do? Who do we bomb? What do we do? Who do we bomb? What do we do? You bomb. You bomb them. Who do you bomb? You bomb. You bomb them. What do we do? We bomb. We bomb them. What do you do? You bomb. You bomb them. Who bomb? We bomb you. Who bomb? We bomb you. Who bomb? You bomb you. Why'd you bomb? We didn't want to bomb. Why'd you bomb? We didn't want to bomb. Why'd you bomb? You didn't want to bomb. Why'd you bomb? You didn't want to bomb. Who said bomb? Who said we had a bomb? Who said bomb? Who said you had a bomb? Who said I had a bomb? Who said you had a bomb? Who said bomb? Who said you had a bomb? Who wants a bomb? We don't want a bomb. Who wants a bomb? We don't want a bomb. 
Who wants a bomb? We don't want a bomb. Who wanted a bomb? Somebody must have wanted a bomb. Who wanted a bomb? Somebody must have wanted a bomb. Who wanted a bomb? Somebody must have wanted a bomb. They needed a bomb. They wanted a bomb. They needed a bomb. They wanted a bomb. They thought they had a bomb. They thought they had a bomb. <laughs> Keeps going. That's the light part. Um, in Pali, those of you studying Buddhist psychology, it is called papancha. Let's say that word, papancha. Papancha. It's kind of punchy. Papancha. Papancha. Defined in English means conceptual proliferation. So when fear is present and the self is feeling ungrounded, it goes outside of itself, metaphysics, it's bigger than the physical, and it creates a story to control reality through projection, so convenient, to give itself a sense of security or stability. Um, But then, because the concept doesn't work, because it's impermanent, it has to proliferate that concept with another concept. But then that doesn't work so good. So then it has to proliferate. And I think what Allen Ginsberg really captures here is just the subtle, subtle, subtle changes of concept to continually fortify my viewpoint, my position. And this is just like, watch any media coverage after any first invasion. And this is what you see. The strong, strong statement of our viewpoint and the fear, the fear. And so when the viewpoint is stated strongly, there's no room for listening. There's no listening. You look at the moon and it's just sharing your viewpoint. You look at your enemy and they're the opposite of your viewpoint. And you're right. (laughs) That's the best part. So again, Heart Sutra here. The Bodhisattva lives Prajnaparamita with no walls in the mind. No walls in the mind and therefore no fear. Far beyond deluded thoughts, this is nirvana. And I like the term delusion or disenchantment is somehow sometimes translated. The end of illusion or disenchantment, sometimes people interpret that as cold, cut off, detached. But disenchantment is the end of enchantment. Not being enchanted by our uh, love of our perspective. Not beginning with an answer. Or there's no inquiry. There's no inquiry. Any questions, thoughts, comments? Are we keep going? Our literary festival. Yes. How is it the heart that we're talking about here? Mm-hmm. I mean, I get not storytelling. I get. Mm-hmm. I think I get non-self. But yeah. the idea of heart suggests something more—a way of being here. Without the storytelling. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I think you just answered your own question. <laughs> to take refuge in um, to take refuge in the aliveness that is this moment when you're not sculpting it into something that suits what you need. Yeah, try keeping up with that. <laughs> yeah. And there are all kinds of yoga exercises like this, like listening to the heartbeat or blinking. Um, blinking's a good one. We, have we done this before? This is a good practice. So um, blink and just recognize that when you just blinked, that moment is over. Try it again. On. <laughs> Try it again. How many times do you do this in a day? This is like a profound practice. And so you blink and you realize not only is that moment over, but you can't go back. You can't change anything that has occurred. And oh, and oh. Yeah. And if the heart's holding on there, um, then it's exhausting. Probably dead. Yeah. Heavy. Heavy heart. Dragging things around. Yeah. But the yogic perspective on that is that you actually can't drag anything around because there is no you there who's dragging anything. And what's liberating about that perspective is that you realize that whatever you're calling the past that you're holding on to is actually not in the past anymore. It's, it's, it's just a thought in the present that's being labeled as the past. Because the past is past. And so whatever you're calling history is actually something you can only experience in the present moment. You can't experience <coughs> history again. You don't even need to drop acid. It's just <laughs> Nowhere else to go. This is it. What are you waiting for? why we chant at the end of the night, we chant, do not squander your life. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Awaken. Do not squander your life. And the way that's usually chanted is everybody chants and then the person who's the timekeeper or the chant leader in the corner, they whisper to the room, So if you have a little voice when you're walking around that whispers things at you, maybe give it this for a little while. Just let it whisper like, do not squander your life. (coughs) 
so that we're not preoccupied in our self story. Last night I went out for dinner and uh, it, it was so busy. And this woman was telling me the story about um, how she's moving, moving away, moving out of the city. And I just, you know, heard the story and it was just another story. And then last night as I was going to bed, I was thinking, wow, somebody's picking up her family and moving to a totally different culture. And how much fear there must be and excitement and all of the bittersweet complexity in making a big move like this with the family. And I realized when she was talking to me in the restaurant, I wasn't really listening. It was like I was just listening with like the top 2% of my <laughs> ear or something, but it wasn't going in. And then a few hours later, I was like, wow, what's this person doing? This is amazing. And what it must be like. And then it was like a few hours later, I finally heard her story. After I said goodbye to her six hours earlier. <laughs> and I'm lucky, that was a good night. Usually I wouldn't think about it. <laughs> yeah, and then I'd see her in four years, and are you still living in the neighborhood? wonderful little poem <coughs> by Michael McClintock, who's a um, contemporary haiku writer, <coughs> who I think captures this. There's that line in the chant where, it's like, let us awaken is not enough. And you just have to do it one more time, awaken. And it's kind of like, that's why I like thinking about this practice in terms of like, rather than using the word enlightenment, really thinking about waking up. You know, because this process of waking, awake, like, look, look again, Look again, look again. Yeah. Here's his three lines. A poppy, a field of poppies, the hills blowing with poppies. Read it one more time. A poppy, a field of poppies, the hills blowing with poppies. Every one of you is a poppy, field of poppies, blowing poppies, talking poppies. Yeah. But most of the time, it's like we can't see that interdependence. We can't see that interconnection. Because when everything that's happening is happening in reference to a me, then it's all separated out. It's all separated out and apart. And then there's discontent. And a kind of loneliness, right? A kind of real deep separation. And then, this existential fear. You see, whenever your <coughs> flow is dominated by um, this kind of um, storytelling, then there's always going to be anxiety. It's like a low-grade anxiety you can't ever get rid of. I see this in psychotherapy. I'm re- I can say I'm a retired psychotherapist now. <laughs> uh, in my psychotherapy career, I saw this all the time, where somebody would have a major breakthrough, 
and they would see that the story they were telling, the way they were representing themselves to themselves, was not helpful anymore. You know? Or maybe, and this is usually what happens, someone else pointed it out. Because actually what sends more people to therapy, more than death or sickness or anything, is relationships. Because other people point out the way you're representing yourself to yourself. You see? And I remember seeing how there were some people where, as quick as possible, they would try to rewrite the story so that then they had now had a new story, like maybe the positive version of the negative story. And how, at a certain level, that's the 3% up here, it makes you feel better. Because maybe for a while some self-esteem increases, you make some new decisions. But at a deeper level, it doesn't touch that dread and existential nausea that we feel when we're living in a way that takes everything we experience and pivots it around a central, substantial me. You see? And so replacing one story with another story is not enough. We have to be able to watch the storyteller operating from a place of stillness without being enchanted by storytelling. And then the interesting thing is we actually begin to, well, maybe you get a sense of humor or something where it's like you start to see the storyteller spinning its web, but you don't get caught in it because you're, you're seeing the story. And maybe it's a good one. <laughs> and like, that's okay. That's okay because we live in language. We don't live outside language. You live in, you're always going to be telling stories. But how to see it operating without, identif- without identifying with it. <clears throat> Any questions, <laughs> stories? <laughs> Do you see um, aspiring to one's dreams or goals just a full-blown enchantment of the story? There. The beginning of the line of the Bodhisattva, Living Prajnaparamita, um, begins with no gain. No gain. Later, no attainment, no non attainment. So I say that there's a certain health in distrusting ambition a little bit. Um, Because who's trying to go forward? Who's making plans? (laughs) So um, in meditative terms, we could say there's prospective mindfulness and retrospective mindfulness. (coughs) Paying attention to the future, planning, or looking back at the past, but there for it, not in the clutches of it, not controlled by it. And um, you know, a lot of artists, when they start practicing meditation, there's, they get scared. 
that they're going to get to some blank place where they're going to lose all their inspiration. And um, hopefully they can really enter that fear to see that under the blank space is so much life. Because the blank space is the storyteller perceiving the absence of the storytelling. Right? But under that is where the good ideas are. You know? But most of the time, we're so caught up in like our seven favorite patterns of thinking, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, worrying, family, sex, money, I don't know, whatever they are. Um, Well, I shouldn't say I don't know whatever they are. (laughs) We all know what they are, you know, and our our culture has these certain patterns, right? Fame, uh, war, um, money as a security project. Um, what are some of the other ones? Sex. 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 Power. Yeah. And that there's no such thing as God. That's the new one. (laughs) If you write a book about that, it's a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Um... So, like, to wait, to wait, to wait for the deeper um, forward-moving inspirations and to go with them, not every small little one. And then um, your life energy, your prana, can be used to move forward with that, as opposed to this ambitiousness, which is like, I don't even have to talk about that, you know, ambitiousness. It's so contracted, and it's so focused that the artwork that comes out of that is not interesting, because it's not allowing in any other perspective. And it's so goal-oriented that making that is not interesting. If you know how your book is going to end, if you know how your film is going to end, if you know how your composition is going to end, then, like... (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah. Is that is that true, Sarah? That's what she, if Sarah says it's true, it's true. Yeah. Michael, you said that we don't. That's why everyone in Parkdale has so much anxiety because they're taking writing lessons with Sarah, and nobody knows how their life is going to end. But that's why everyone's free. You said that we don't we don't live outside of language, but no. sometimes we can escape for a little while. I I'm not sure if I think that way. I mean, we have to function in language. Yeah. But there's mm-hmm. a greater. I think that the greater part <coughs> of us lives outside of language. It's just uh-huh. that we don't uh, practice that at all, or we're trying not to. Mm-hmm. Um, notice it or make it something important yeah yeah. I don't want to split us up into greater parts and smaller parts the fact is humans live with language and some part of our existence doesn't need language to operate necessarily mm-hmm. the acids in my stomach are <coughs> not needing language right now 
Uh, but for me to tell you that the acids in my stomach are not needing language right now, I need language. So language is a little bit like the ground. When you, you, you fall on it, it hurts. But then you actually need it to get back up again. And so the Buddha says the same thing. He calls it a thorn. That you get a thorn stuck in your arm. How do you get it out? With a thorn. Right? It's like homeopathy. Right? <laughs> So, like anyone who works with language knows that when you really want to work well with language, you're doing homeopathy on language. So you're taking language and using it on itself. Any good psychotherapist knows that to do good psychotherapy, you actually have to take psychology theory and turn it on itself. If you want to improvise and dance, you have to take your dance language and you have to turn it on itself. And then the language sees through itself so that you don't confuse the map and the territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you do that with language. Because mm-hmm. then you write it down. In whatever plastic you use. Yeah. 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 But, for a while, I really thought that meditation was going to take me beyond language. Mm-hmm. I remember when I, I remember so clearly having an experience after long days of sitting and lighting a fire and realizing for the last few minutes I didn't think. For a few minutes now, I had n- it was the first time in my life where there was no thinking. <clears throat> and um, what a relief. You know, I'll never forget that. And then... Now I'm telling you. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to get off topic, but for those of you who are studying the Yoga Sutra, there are eight stages of samadhi, and this is how they work. The first stage of samadhi is a moment of that without language. Second state of samadhi is when you realize, with language, that there was just no language. Third state of samadhi is when you realize that with language... It's less still, samapati, there's less coalescence than with language, Mm -hmm. without language. And actually, so the first four stages of samadhi are going back and forth between language and no language. It's kind of cool. What are the last ones? Oh, (laughs) not tonight. (laughs) Is it beyond language? Well, the first four are called bija, and the second four are called nirbija. You know what bija is? A seed, yeah. So with seeds and without seeds. Um, so in the second, four, in the last four stages of samadhi, there's concentration happening, but there are not so many seeds being planted. But I'll leave it at that. Yeah. That's a whole other night. But we're almost there. <clears throat> and therefore attain anuttara samyak sambodhi. We'll deal with it very soon. <coughs> Any other <coughs> questions, comments, <coughs> concerns? Thank you, sir. I guess it sort of relates to um, this language conversation, but I'm, I'm wondering why the Heart Sutra is, is running a monotone pace at the very, very beginning. Yeah. Because then it seems that you spend an hour using the language that, that we're conversing to mm-hmm. describe it. 
Mm -hmm. I assume it's stripping away the, the meaning so that other meaning can come. What's the reason behind um, the, the monotone chant of the beginning of the Heart Sutra? So it doesn't get too fancy. And um, we keep the form really, really simple. If you really want to chant it properly, it starts off slowly, and actually halfway through it really picks up speed. And then there's clackers and bells and all kinds of stuff, and you start wearing black, you become vegetarian, and then you become vegan, and then you stop traveling, and then you don't hang out with people anymore. <coughs> And then you have no friends, which is helpful for your practice. <laughs> and um, it's personal experience. And then um, you can do really deep practice, and uh, um, you don't have to engage with anything. It's really great. It's monotone practice. And uh, it's really easy to practice because nothing is going to ever interrupt it, ever. <laughs> and uh, then you start like practicing one technique because you're good at it and then you stop going to other schools you stop reading the newspaper you stop paying attention to anything and actually your life well you become a yogi but you, your life has become totally inflexible you become smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter yeah but you're spiritual. It's really cool. <laughs> and then you fall in love. And out of love with yourself. And then the world bursts forth. And then you realize that actually, the world needs you. Because um, stillness on your meditation cushion is only a small percentage of what you're capable of. And you use the insight from that percentage, from that experience, to take action. And the greatest travesty in contemporary obsession with meditation is people who think that they should not take action in the world until they get to a certain level of their meditation practice. And uh, that sets up a kind of linear style of practice where it helps us avoid um, the Don River and uh, if you walk across the bridge at Queen Street across the Don River right now it's totally blocked up with a huge beaver dam and the beavers are just like you can watch beavers you can see the beavers there working on the dam yeah and those beavers need you so what you're doing here has to serve those beavers. And for some of you in here, it's true. For Jack, you're going to go down and you're going to help the beavers. Um, somebody else is going to make a film about it. Somebody else is actually going to stay in their house and just write poetry that will change people's minds. And all of that is the expression of your practice. So that's why, especially on retreat, when people come and say, well, you have your interviews, and people come and say, oh, I've had this experience of stillness. Like, okay, well, what are you going to do with that now? What are you going to do? It's like, whoa, well, no, no, I just stuck up. It's like, netty, netty. No, 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 bad lady. 
just heard Joanna Macy today say, call that kind of a stillness, premature equanimity. Premature, yeah. 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 And it's a kind of armchair, it's kind of armchair enlightenment, because you don't have to um, get up, you know? And uh, a good teacher will push you around every time you have those kind of experiences. Because when we have, and you're going to have this in your practice, a lot of you I know have had these kinds of experiences, that, you know, you have a really strong vision that wakes you up, literally. But it has to be integrated. And that's the difference between this practice and eating mushrooms. Because you can take all kinds of hallucinogenics and experience very, very similar things. But you don't necessarily have the skill that's been built up to integrate that, to really put that to work. Yeah. So the experiences as momentary insights are just as valid, but when you have the experience on LSD, you think it's because of the LSD. And then you have to take LSD to do that again. But it's not because of the LSD. It's a state of mind. It's, it's, a, it's a process in mind that you've touched without frames. <clears throat> and um, that's what's interesting. Not the content of the mystical experience. Hmm. Okay, so let's finish by chanting, and then I have a couple of announcements. <clears throat>